Welcome to the third annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. Please support these companies. They took the time to educate us during this conference. I got too many screens going. Um, thanks a lot for joining us, Bain. Um, for those of you guys that don't know, uh, Bain and I worked together previously on, on projects in Oklahoma. Uh, as well as Texas. Uh, that's actually how we met originally. Uh, Bain was working at one of the largest organic certified vegetable facilities. Uh, then um, uh, when I was working in Oklahoma, I, uh, I managed to recruit him up north into Oklahoma and, and work with weed instead of lettuce and work with the devil's lettuce instead. So I think he has a little more fun up there than he did uh, down in Texas. But uh, um, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Bain is the head cultivator of uh, Vertica Aquaponics, uh, which is um, one of the large, actually the largest aquaponics cannabis facility in Oklahoma, and one of the largest in the country. So uh, thanks a lot for joining us and, uh, and take it away. Well, I just want to say again, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's uh, really an honor to be a part of this whole thing. Uh, with everybody here, all the knowledge getting passed around, uh, it's a great privilege to be a part of it. So yeah, uh, happy to be here. I'm gonna go ahead and get to sharing my screen. Got a little uh, slideshow for all here today. Uh, is everybody able to see that just fine? Awesome. Well, um, like um, y'all had already heard a time or two by now, uh, my name is Bain Howard. I'm the head cultivator here at Vertica Farms. Uh, we are a medically licensed aquaponic cannabis facility operating in Oklahoma. Um, so just Kind of, I guess, the subject of my talk today, I wanted to just really take part in this educational knowledge sharing experience we've got going here. So I want to tell you all a little bit about who I am, where I come from, my experiences in aquaponics, and then the majority of it, uh, my focus today is going to be on our facility at Vertica, kind of our process, how we do what we do. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining me and tuning in to listen. Uh, so yeah, here, this is me. Uh, I was originally born South Lake, Texas, born and raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, I went to school for agriculture, actually. I went to Texas A&M University, uh, studied agricultural system management, got a minor in business administration, uh, both of which have been extremely helpful in the weed game, funnily enough. It had told me that uh, going to school in Texas to start off with, I might not have believed yet. But uh, my farming career experience uh, really began down there uh, when I was going to school. The first time I actually heard the words aquaponics was part of a, a course I was taking. We were actually doing a profitability study for men who was doing small scale, one to two acre organic veggie lots. Uh, and we were doing a study form as, as part of our coursework to prove to people and provide some material showing that that's still a viable way to live, produce food for yourself and your family and, and make money while you're doing it. Uh, he had a little aquaponic farm that was tied into his whole thing. So saw the fish, saw the veggies, uh, kind of fell in love right away. I was fortunate enough to find uh, a different farm that was a little closer where I was living and going to school at the time uh, called, it was Earth Galley Farms at the time, uh, also Aquatic Greens Farm, the name they're uh, still operating under today. Uh, a really family-oriented, education-based uh, program they had out there. We just had deep water culture. Uh, we were doing vegetables, growing tomatoes, a couple rows of, of corn and squash out back, and uh, we had a team of people out there doing uh, community-supported agriculture. Um, so we were doing little baskets we would build with, you know, whatever was seasonal, fresh, uh, both from ourselves and then local vendors, uh, putting together these baskets and then running home deliveries and taking those, you know, door to door and trying to improve uh, the quality and um, quality of food and produce that people were getting. So did that for a few years, uh, I guess graduated or moved to a larger aquaponics uh, facility from there, still in the in the produce vegetable sector. Uh, it was uh, up in Terrell, Texas. We were doing, like I said, commercial lettuce production. 
we were operating at a volume of around seven or 6,000 heads of lettuce every week, year after year, or uh, week after week, month after month, all year long. Uh, trying our best to supply national chains of uh, grocery stores uh, with the little living lettuce you see in the clamshells with the roots still attached. Uh, that was our game. We were playing that for quite a while. Had a lot of fun, learned a whole lot doing that. Uh, Steve had mentioned it was after a year or two of doing the lettuce thing, Oklahoma kind of legalized, came up here. Uh, I was always interested as a young adult in cannabis industry, what, was, what it all was involved, um, everything that this plant can do and provide for people has always kind of fascinated me. Uh, of course, down in Texas, that's not something that was allowed by the great state of Texas. So didn't really do much uh, in terms of the cannabis plant while I was down there. But when Oklahoma came around, I've got family up here They're right next door. Uh, so we popped across the border, moved up here, I guess it's about three years ago now. Uh, was involved in a couple of different projects from uh, building ground up a aquaponics system. I actually worked with Steve on that project. He did a lot of the designs. We put together this uh, a great greenhouse up there. That was a really good time. Like I said, fantastic learning experience. We did a lot of a lot of plumbing, a lot of digging in the dirt in the in the hot Oklahoma summer. So. Yeah, lots of fun memories out there. Did a good amount of fishing as well. Uh, we always stuck to, uh, look into include cannabis and fish, uh, whether it was at work or in the off time. So uh, now that kind of brings us to today. Uh, I'm here in Vertica Farms. Uh, we are, like I said, we're a medically licensed facility. Uh, all in all, between our, our two buildings, you can kind of see here, we're right around 10,000, or actually just under 10,000 square feet of flower and canopy space here. Um, now that, that includes about four or 5,000 plants at any one given time. We are doing a perpetual monthly harvest. So in all times, we've got plants and flower or late flower, early flower, veg, clones, one gallons, all that stuff's constantly churning through the greenhouse year round. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of moving parts, but uh, we really like that because like I said, it gives us perpetual harvest every month. We're able to bring new stuff and adapt to the climate and everything as it's changing. Um, we're not all, all cards in on a single hand, hoping this one room turns out well. Of course we you know treat every room as though it's, uh, it's the only one, but when you've got another one coming up behind it, uh, that obviously influences your decisions in a lot of ways. Uh, so our current farm, it is a renovated farm. We did not uh, come into a blank facility. This is one that was previously a lettuce farm. It was one of the, you know, kind of mail order deals, put peg A into slot B. And if you follow all the instructions at the end of the day, you'll have yourself a lettuce farm. Uh, it, it worked as that for some years before I got here, they were doing lettuce, elderberries, uh, they had the deep water culture where they were doing all the lettuce. They had the gutter style NFT systems uh, and, and media beds here. Now there was also somebody else had come along. Adjustments were made to the farm as often happens in these kind of things. Uh, but I'm now on board as part of the team. We've made our major plumbing renovations. Uh, we've been running this current system now for going on two years, uh, which is we run our mother plants in a dual root zone setup. Uh, and then we also have living soil containers that are on rolling benches uh, that we irrigate with aquaponic system water, as well as you know other different K and F inputs uh, and whatever kind of top dressing and stuff like that we need kind of as the plants are going forth. Uh, a little bit about the nuts and bolts of the greenhouse itself. Uh, we do have automated climate controls. So there's a, a programmable logic controller, a little PLC that, you know, is all constantly taken temperature, light, humidity readings, uh, compiles all that data together, keeps it in a nice log form where we can look back on it and, and make adjustments and then also control the environment that we provide for the plants through some of the tools you see here, our misters, heaters, evaporative cooling walls, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, like I said, we are running rolling rolling benches with the container plants. You can kind of see those 
down there in that bottom picture. Of course, we're trellising all these plants up, so by the time they get all heavy, they're not falling down onto the tables or, or causing a whole bunch of mess or, or anything like that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I think one of the biggest points, and a lot of people sometimes skimp on this, but uh, it's, a, it's a harsh lesson to learn when designing a greenhouse or when taking one over, either way, it's a redundancy in your system. Uh, it's crucial for long-term success. Eventually, no matter what, if you're, you know, you're a successful operating business, the goal is to stay in business year after year. And eventually there's gonna be a snowstorm up here in Oklahoma. There's gonna be a tornado that rolls through. Some guy's gonna hit the telephone pole. Power's gonna go down. Uh, something's gonna happen. Uh, and when it does, you need to be prepared as much as you can for that. Uh, really, it starts at the design stage. Um, so from, from day one, you need to integrate and, and plan your system so that it can be as fail-proof as possible, or at least when it does fail, there's quick, easy ways to get everything back up and running. Um, so from the design standpoint, that's you know trying to make one single pump run your whole system. I've seen systems where they had this pump feeding that tank that then went across the farm over here and drained into a sump and then that hit a valve and it's prone to fail. Um, so as much as possible, simplifying things, having a single pump pulling from, from some central sump and recirculating your system uh, makes it so that when inevitably that pump goes wrong or you lose power, it's easy to get everything back up and running again. Uh, that goes doubly for kind of all the equipment I've listed out here. You need a, a backup generator or something that can kick on and turn on your pumps, keep your water flowing. Uh, obviously critical for aquaponics is making sure all the air blowers are running. Uh, then you can't, can't only focus on the fish. You've got all the plant things you got to worry about as well. So all your exhaust fans, your light depth curtains, um, everything you got to do to keep the climate itself so you're not toasting a, a greenhouse full of plants. Uh, that's all critical. Uh, so you can do that in a number of ways. Obviously there's backup generator, there's multiple different options for those. You need to take your list kind of like I've got here uh, and really put together your critical wattage, what you need to do to get by, to make it for a day, make it for a week, and then size your generator appropriately for that, whether you're gonna need the natural gas or, or propane or diesel fuel, whatever they, you know, sell any kind of generator to fit the fuel that you're able to get and source and, and use at your farm. And those things need to be able to run all your critical systems. Uh, it also helps, in our case, we're a, um, we're a hybrid style greenhouse. So our exhaust fans and intake and outlet vents all need to be able to be opened, even if there is no power at the farm, if something happens with the backup generator. Uh, all of our stuff has been designed in a way and we've gotten greenhouses that are, you're able to plug you know, a battery operated drill into it and crank that thing on, close your vents, open your vents, or uh, in the case of keeping your photo period right, you can close and open the shade curtains and the blackout curtains as well with that. Uh, Obviously, nobody wants the photo period messed up. Uh, that can really give you a whole bunch of headaches, especially uh, when it comes to cannabis. Now, we if anybody had tuned into the commercial panel just before this, uh, we touched on something that I think is, is super important. It kind of goes hand in hand with the generators, and that's something known as, a, as an auto dialer. It's basically an emergency alert system. Uh, if you take this, you know, little black box, you mount it on the wall and you can plug in all kinds of different auxiliary sensors into it that can measure, really there's just about anything under the sun. You can do your environmental temperature, you know, the presence of, of current to tell if the electricity is flowing to your, your pumps and blowers. You can set it up for air pressure on the uh, manifolds that your actual air system goes into too. So even if a pipe gets kicked and, and broken at some point in your system, the auto dialer senses that the pump is still running and air is still blowing, but nothing's getting to the fish. You can still alert. It can call somebody because, as we've said, and as uh, unfortunately, 
I personally have learned this, things can go wrong really quickly in the aquaponic system. You've got 15, 30 minutes before you need somebody on site who's able to hit those switches, turn the backup pump on, or, or do something in order to remedy some of these situations. Because when you're dealing with a living aquaponic system, all those things are alive. They've got their, their needs, their biological oxygen demand does not stop just because the power went out. You've got to be able to feed those microbes, feed those fish, and keep everybody happy, even though the juice isn't always flowing. Uh, and that's something you have to prepare for. Uh, so with the uh, with all the scary stuff, I guess, kind of out of the way, I wanted to show you all a little bit about the farm. Uh, here I've got a little video. This is just running through our fish tank room. So we do run a combination of koi, which you saw in that first tank there. And then when we inherited this farm, it was set up as the classic lettuce and fish model. So we do still have a bunch of holdover uh, tilapia, but they're... Uh, they're not a bad fish. I don't mean to imply that by any means. Uh, you know, they get that nickname, the bulletproof fish, for good reason. Uh, we like them. We keep them around because they are just little tanks. Uh, if you feed them, they're going to do their thing, and, and they'll keep doing it day after day as long as you keep giving them what they need to do. Um, now, a little bit about kind of how the flow through our system works. Let me back this video up here, and I can kind of give you the play-by-play as we uh, move through everything. So we do run a fully coupled uh, recirculating system, at least between our fish tanks and our mother plants. It's continuously recirculating water. That's all uh, the inlets you see here on the sides of the tanks with water coming in. That's straight out of, uh, actually these mother plants you see behind me, if you see my screen. It comes straight out of there, flows into the tanks. And then in these tanks you see marked clarifier, that's just a very, basic rudimentary uh, sedimentation tank, the little baffle in the middle forces water to you know, flow down and around depositing a majority of the solids, not everything, but a majority of the heavy solids at the bottom of the bottom tanks. Water then flows through uh, our mineralization tanks that you see behind there, which are, again, just another simple physical, um, physical barrier that's designed to capture solids and keep those from flowing through. I'll skip forward in this. You can also see uh, in the background, after passing through those tanks, it does flow through a moving bead reactor. So we've got one of those in line that's always there uh, working on the system. We also do pull off the uh, solids and sludge from the bottom of these clarifiers, run those through a little additional mineralization loop. Uh, there's, a, there's a little polishing filter that will get those solids out of after we've aerated them. Uh, and really tried to wring every little bit of nutrients that we can out of those uh, those fish solids and before, you know, filtering those out and then taking the clear water off the top of that and reintroducing in that into the recirculating system. So that's kind of through the fish room there. From, uh, from that point, we walk out into the greenhouse. And now, as anybody who's kept fish knows, uh, water quality is critical. Um, there's really no limit to the different parameters you could check as far as water quality goes in an aquaponic system. Uh, we have a couple of different ones that we're always trying to stay on top of and continuously monitor. Uh, some of those things I've got kind of listed up there. Temperature, pH, uh, there's a few different monitors out there that let you continuously, you know, I can pull this guy up. I can pull the phone up anytime, pull up my app and see what temperature pH is on the system. Not that we have a lot of swings or anything crazy that's happening there, but it is good. Gives everybody a little peace of mind when you can check and make sure, you know, nothing's gone crazy. Nobody's knocked the bottle of acid into the system or or left the fill, fill tank on and is blowing, you know, ice cold rainwater into the system when we're not expecting it. Uh, it helps kind of keep tabs on those things. Now, in addition to that, we do also at the farm do a bi-weekly test. So every two weeks we are taking water samples. We'll send those off to a third party lab to check uh, nutrient content. Uh, that's more for the plant's sake uh, to see exactly what's getting fed to them. Whereas 
we do a little more frequently test the things that are critical to our fish health, you know, things like dissolved oxygen and then your, your nitrate ammonia levels, things like that. Um, you can kind of see here, there's a, several different suppliers for these little dropper tests. I know uh, it was mentioned earlier that uh, Hanna Industries has a couple of different meters that will quantify some of these exact values. So you don't have to worry about looking at the little color sheets and going, eh, is that one, is that two? Where do we actually fall on the scale? Um, so that helps with a little extra peace of mind. But uh, at the end of the day, you're always, always checking all these different parameters. Uh, I've included a little picture here of something that we undertook at the farm this last summer, uh, because really one of our biggest, well, parameter that makes uh, a huge difference in our plant health, fish health, everything is our water temperature. Um, what we've done here in these pictures you see behind or on the slideshow uh, is just right behind our greenhouse. We went in and excavated quite a bit of dirt out so we could get these PEX coils that we made and wrapped all together, took quite some time. Uh, laid out in there and basically what this is is a very rudimentary low electricity uh, passive heat exchanger so water flows through these pex coils you see in the beds then goes outside flows deep underground where you've got a consistent temperature in that soil all the time the water passing through there obviously exchanges heat with the surrounding ground and that cooler water comes back in and circulates through the system it has definitely helped or notably helped take some of the edge off in the middle of the summer. I mean, don't get me wrong, we still get warm, but um, this has been, in my experience, extremely cost effective, uh, certainly compared to like large scale chillers. For something of this system volume, we run about uh, 100,000 liters in the system. Trying to move that much, the temperature of that much water like the power of electricity, uh, it's a losing game when, <laughs> when it comes time to, to pull that electricity bill out. So this is a way we found that that helps us influence temperature and all we have to do is, is run a pump to move the water through here time and time again. And we really click this thing on in the spring and let it run all summer long. And, it, and like I said, it helps take a little bit of the sting out of the water there. Now, as far as how plants actually move through our system. Uh, I've got a little video here that I want to show y'all. This is on our, our mother plants. Uh, this is where we're going to be taking all of our clones for uh, basically all the propagation that happens at the farm comes off of these beds right here. And like I had said before, our water flows through the fish tank. And then these are all set in dual root zone pots on top of floating racks here. And uh, after this video plays, we'll come through and I've got some more um, profile shots, I suppose, showing kind of how that's all set up. Uh, but we found this to be extremely effective. I know when I first kind of came and took over, they were doing just straight deep water culture and trying to, you know, run clones in the deep water culture and then transplant them up into soil when they were, you know, teens at that point, which was a nightmare and had had very poor results. Um, so this is some a way that we've found that really helps the cannabis plants thrive uh, because you're not necessarily dependent entirely on solely the aquatic layer. You get the help of that extraterrestrial layer, the microbiome that's involved there. Uh, and then it also gives you a, an opportunity to supplement um, with things you might not necessarily want or need in the, uh, in the whole system. You know, you don't necessarily want to Page for the costs to bump nutrients on 100,000 gallons or 100,000 liters, excuse me, of water when you can do it to 100 and get, get the plants what they need. Um, so that's how the mom plants here work. Uh, they really, really like this dual root zone setup. We're in here in this jungle every, at least every two weeks, just having to do a major defoliation. I know last week when we did it, we pulled just over a hundred pounds of foliage out of the moms. Uh, so, you know, that all went to the compost pile. It's, it's great biomass and, and we're re, you know, harnessing those nutrients, but uh, it does get a bit crazy in there when these plants really tap in and get 
the benefits of the of the dual root zone pots. Uh, and now we have kept a lot of these plants for you know north of a year. Um, by that point, they're kind of monstrous and they become a bit unruly. Uh, when we know that they keep growing in there without any kind of problems, but uh, just for the physical constraints kind of that we're, we're working in and trying to keep them out of the lights and keep them well maintained for just labor flow, uh, we won't typically keep our monitor any longer than that. They just kind of get too big at that point, which is a good problem to have, I know, but you gotta do what you gotta do. Uh, this is a little video showing the whole greenhouse. We'll kind of pan over everything. You can see our our moms here kind of ran out of room on the table, so we had to had to resort to the floor. Um, but as you can see, a bunch of happy, healthy ladies. We're doing, like I said, containers on the rolling benches. Uh, I'll go into a little bit more detail about what exactly is going into the the mix of those here in a bit. But that is the. The facility and the mom is there. So here are some of those shots I was saying. I think they really illustrate uh, benefits of the dual root zone. Um, we'll do a three gallon pot up there on top with our soil mix of choice, whatever it's going to be. Like I said, we've been playing with a few different things. So uh, whatever that, uh, I guess, flavor of the month is goes in that soil layer up top. And then a layer of burlap, we've got a nice big hole cut in there so they can put a lot of roots through. Uh, and then there's a net cup down in there that holds your, um, we use hydrogen. You can really use any kind of inert media. I've seen, you know, crushed granite, lava rocks, a whole bunch of different things will work. Uh, as long as you're making sure you're non-reactive with the system water, uh, it'll work. So the roots will punch through there. And as you can see, once they hit the water, they'll really spread out uh, and, and fill the bed underneath them to the point where when it's time to take moms out of there, sometimes it can be a bit of a task to, to wrestle all the roots out and, and get everything out of there. Uh, but again, that's kind of a, a good problem that we deal with. Okay, so when it comes to uh, propagation, at our farm at least, there's a couple of different things that we consider. Uh, Obviously, new genetics coming onto the farm uh, presents a whole lot of situations. Uh, it can be really exciting. It can also be very scary when you start to think about the different bugs and stuff like that that can be coming from the new new hot cut in town or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so when we do propagate at our farm, we prefer to do it from seeds. Uh, we've had bad experiences with clones before. Uh, so really any of our pheno hunts, any of our strain selection is going to come from uh, popping seeds and doing a pheno hunt. Um, really the process that's involved in that, for those who aren't familiar, uh, you're going to take your pack of seeds, throw them all down, and start start growing some plants. Uh, there comes a time in, in every young plant's life where changes start to happen. Uh, you can kind of see on the right side of the screen there, uh, they can be identified as either, you know, your typical male or female plants. Uh, we're not interested in doing any kind of breeding projects, whether intentional or otherwise at the farm. So all of our males, uh, they unfortunately get the boot out of the farm. And then we will start the, what turns into quite a long process of phenol hunting those strains, where we'll keep that original seedling grow her up to a size where we can get uh, a couple of clones off of her. We typically like to see about 10 to 10 to 12 grow those up. And then once they're old enough to flower and really give us a representative sample of their phenotype, we'll you know fill a table with 100 plants, try to get a good sample size of everybody, grow them and, and see what happens. Uh, obviously then there's a lot of selection that, that comes into play, both from pest and disease resistance to finish product, how does it look? What's the bag appeal? How does it smell? And then of course, how does it uh, test out and what are the what are the kind of effects that you're getting? That's a very long and intensive process, uh, but one that I think is critical, especially when you're at scale like this. You can't just throw all your eggs in, in a basket and hope it, you know, hope for the best. Uh, uh, it's, 
the market's kind of unforgiving, unfortunately. Uh, certainly in Oklahoma right now, it's pretty flush. People are pretty selective. So if you're not bringing your best to the table, you're going to have a pretty hard time uh, trying to move stuff out on the open market. It's kind of plain, plain as that. And really, that's always been the case in the cannabis industry. But uh, we're certainly seeing that now in Oklahoma. So Vino hunt's super important. Uh, you want to make sure what you're putting out there, especially when you're doing it a couple hundred times, is gonna is gonna pay for all your efforts and, and all the labor and work that goes into it. Uh, something else to consider: um, there can be some tricky legalities with getting new strains and things like that, and stable genetics in relatively young uh, cannabis markets. Uh, to get something that's, you know, got the state stamp on it, got its metric certified uh, stickers and all that into the facility, much less something that's clean, something that is going to be, you know, produce flour that you actually want. Uh, that's a really tricky, tricky thing and something that takes a lot of time. So for that reason, once we find something we like, we want to be sure to keep it. So everything at our farm, uh, aside from brand new genetics is done from cloning. And really that makes up all of our production, uh, all of our production plants are taken from cloning. We'll rarely, um, we do some auto flower stuff, but that is very much still in its R&D, doing it for extraction kind of uh, phase and very much still looking for good genetics on that front as well. So at the farm, we're, we're taking clones, a lot of clones. Uh, sometimes a thousand clones will go into making up one of our generations. Uh, the process for that, I think, is is outlined pretty pretty well established. Uh, we're we're doing peat plugs at the farm right now for for the sake of consistency and the volume we're running. Um, so we'll do those in a little mild nutrient solution, uh, and then. <clears throat> As everybody knows, when you take your cuts, you got to dip them uh, in some sort of rooting compound. Now, we've done quite a few different uh, trials out at the farm and find that really the biggest factor, uh, more than, you know, what brand you want to out as the, as the best of the best, is really mom health. Uh, it all comes down to how, health, how happy and healthy is that mom. Uh, that's going to influence your your stick rate more than anything else uh, in my experience. So at the end of the day, don't worry as much, at least when it comes to your cloning process on, on brand names and methodology. I know there's you know a lot of ways to spend a lot of money on fancy cloning kits and all self-contained cloning apparatuses and, and stuff like that, but invest that time and effort in your mom and that, that in my opinion, will pay pay dividends a lot faster than the hot new Clonomatic 5000. But uh, another super thing, super important thing that I think needs to be brought up when when talking about cloning is that this is really the phase where your pest management program starts. Uh, I mean, I guess if you think about it as a as a circle, it starts with the moms, and there's no beginning or end to it, but this is a, a great point to interject in that cycle and really get focused when it comes to your pest management problems or at least your program and how you're gonna respond to that. Um, so this can involve sprays, dips, beneficial insects, uh, kind of dependent on what's going on in the farm at that moment. Uh, if we're seeing any kind of outbreaks or stuff that very much affects what we're gonna do for these clones. Uh, we'll cater, you know, from month to month as we're doing each generation, we'll cater our clone taking process to, you know, are these going to get a dip? What are they going to get? Whether it's going to be something for, for bugs or antifungal or whatever the case may be. Uh, we're looking at our moms before we're taking our clones, making that kind of decision and then implementing that. So, like I said, pest management, super critical. Uh, I've got some of the some of the baddies here, uh, and and the king of the pests themselves. I think one that gives a lot of a lot of people nightmares is the russet mite. Uh, but there are uh, there are ways to deal with all these things. Um, 
I know in, in a brand new clean facility and everybody will always say it and it's absolutely true, you know, prevention is is better than treatment. Uh, keeping them out of the grow is is the critical first step. Unfortunately, that's not always a possibility. Uh, as anybody who's taken over a farm knows or who's gotten cuts from their buddy who says, oh no, man, they're totally clean. Don't worry about it. Uh, bugs find their way in. And, and you've got to have something in place uh, ready to deal with those. Um, not only to deal with them, but to spot them as soon as you possibly can uh, and to deal with them. Because sometimes you inherit problems and sometimes they just happen. Um, so our big, uh, I guess the two pillars that we really stand on out at our farm are beneficial insects and then uh, biological sprays. So what we really do, we'll use a couple of different knockdown products if if things get crazy, you know, there's there's soft oil or in extreme cases, if you've got to go to the sulfur, as long as you're doing it in a in a veg only kind of situation, those are options that we'll use if if the uh, situation calls for it. But really, we're trying to fight the problem of bugs with biology. Um, that, in my opinion, is really the only way to, to combat the problem is is turning the natural predators or natural solutions to these pest problems against them. Uh, there's a number of different ways you can do that. Uh, I know we've Steve, you spoke this morning about a lot of cool stuff that if anybody hadn't heard about it, go back and give that one a different list, another listen. Uh, I know there the IMO options and the IPMO options. Uh, there's some really fascinating stuff happening there where I just started cooking some rice this morning to get to get my boxes out uh, with a couple of a different mixes as far as insect grass and stuff like that goes. Um, and I want to do some trials on that. But um, for us at the farm, what we're doing right now is, <clears throat> excuse me, what we're doing right now at the farm is a lot of biological sprays. Uh, I say a lot. It's really, you know, once, twice a week we'll come in there. And I think something that's super important for doing any spray regimen, really, whether it's biological or otherwise, is your application equipment. Um, I'm a big fan of the, the gram products. They are, uh, they can be a bit pricey, but when it comes to getting uniform and consistent coverage, their cold fogger unit is excellent. Uh, we really like that one. Um, like it does the, it's an ultra low volume applicator. So it does super fine particle sizes and you're able to get away with a lot lower volumes uh, and get the same amount of efficacy. So you're using less product, spraying less. And then um, when it comes to anything you know anything you're putting out on your plants the lower amount of water volume is gonna you know you're not running into as many problems with humidity issues or getting any kind of powdery mildew coming up from when you're spraying real real crazy um so those are all that's kind of how we deal with problems uh preventing those is also super important so we're doing things like uh we have our boot bats at every entrance into the farm that will, you know, keep, you know, all the things that are riding around on people's shoes out of there. We do uh, scrubs so everybody's able to change out of their clothes from home as soon as they come to the farm. Because, uh, you know, we have people at home who have, you know, gardens of their own. Uh, they're, you know, growing their own medicine for their themselves. Uh, and we don't want to, by all means, we don't want to take away from that. And in fact, we, you know, encourage and seek people who have a passion to the degree where they keep plants at home and, and are interested in doing that. And you can learn some fantastic things from, you know, some, somebody was able to try on their problem plant to, and in the back that, you know, we don't necessarily get to experiment with when you're dealing with a couple thousand plants at a time. Uh, so that's fantastic, but it also can have risks, um, you know, Somebody's got a problem at home, it's very easy for that to ride on their clothes, ride in the beanie and come right into the grill. And now guess what? You've got you've got a big problem at the grill too. <laughs> so for that reason, uh, we really stress biosecurity. That's why we'll change our clothes. Everybody's got, you know, clothes and boots that live at the farm for the different buildings and the different grow rooms uh, in an effort to 
minimize as much as cross contamination as much as we possibly can. Um, however, like I said, stuff happens. Uh, there's there's cracks in every greenhouse, and these little buggers really want to come in and and get your plants. So you will find bugs eventually. Uh, I think if you're in this business long enough, it's something that's going to happen. It's you know one of those when not if things. So having a routine scouting program in place is really important. Um, and I think that takes a lot of different forms. I try to go out regularly with the Dynalite scope and put a, you know, a real close eye on everything, uh, at least once a week, if not more. But one person's not able to, to look at all this stuff and, and see everything that's to be seen out there. So that's where it really becomes a team effort. Uh, well, in many, many ways, it's a team effort. But the pest scouting is, is a team effort as well. It's important that everybody kind of knows what to look for, what you want to see, what you don't want to see out in the garden so that, you know, when we're walking down water in or, or checking for moisture level uh, and you see that weird funky leaf, you can clip it, throw it in a Ziploc bag, seal it up and, and stow it away to be looked at and examined later uh, if stuff's busy. I mean, I'd love when stuff goes wrong to deal with it right then. It's not always the case, but it's important that everybody knows that, you know, they play a vital role in, you know, keeping an eye out and, and identifying problems like that while they're still as small as possible so we can get it fixed and, and nipped before it becomes a big, you know, room-wide problem that uh, is not able to be dealt with. That's kind of how we approach the pest management, uh, the pest management problem. Uh, something else that we use a lot at the farm, uh, we do a lot of KNF inputs. Uh, I'd like to give a big shout out to Steve and Chris Trump as well. I won't get into the details. They've got tons of informational videos out there on how exactly to do and collect some of these different things, and you know step-by-step -step instructions that I'm not going to step on. They work extremely well and, and stick to that. But some of the ones that we, we do at the farm, we do IMO collection, you'll see. We've got our little rice box there. Uh, labs, I think, is one. That is certainly the one that we use most at the farm. Uh, we've got a regular routine where we're inoculating that into the system uh, on a bi-weekly basis. Uh, and then you'll also see the picture there is we've done a little FAA to give a little added punch to some of our um, <clears throat> some of our irrigations. Uh, and that was actually the result of a of the old family fish fry when we decided we had a few too many fish in the tanks. Uh, all the all the heads and skeletons made it into that box and and came out as a as a nice FAA for us. Um, but these things I think are super critical. I really believe that aquaponics hinges on um, the microbiology that makes up you know, every living part of the system. Uh, and as much diversity that we can have in there, especially ones that aren't necessarily the bug in the jug, but it's something that's come from your own indigenous environment is gonna be more well-tailored for your, your farm and your area. Uh, so doing things like the IMO collection really helps to beef up the system with with what's important and what works best in this environment. Uh, so that's you know the main reason we do some of the different uh, KNF inputs at the farm. Uh, as you can see in some of these pictures, I'd like to declare that it has been fairly effective. Uh, we do see quite a bit of fungal growth both in the in the beds, in the containers, and then in the microscope as well. Uh, while I myself am maybe not the best at identifying specific species, you can definitely tell that our biodiversity and activity in our soil has gone up uh, since we've started implementing a lot of these different things. Uh, and we're, we're happy to see that, uh, whether it's in the compost pile or in the pods. So uh, as kind of everything makes its way through the greenhouse, uh, we're vegging for four to six weeks. We run a one gallon pot. 
uh, pop it up to a five gallon and then and then veg in there before we go to flip the flour. Uh, Brandon Russ was talking earlier from Bokashi Earthworks. We've had great success with some of his mixes before. We are starting now to transition to a mix of that Bokashi and then some of our own uh, compost that we've made out at the farm from you know our our foliage and waste products that come both out of the fish system and then out of defoliations and things like that. So we're kind of trying to um, enrich that, build biodiversity in there, and then we're we're incorporating that back into the system. Oh, and forgive me, I just noticed what time it was. I'll try to speed through the last bit of this here. Uh, so we veg, we uh, flower for another eight to 10 weeks when we move everything up. We do typically go for a big defoliation, strip everything down, train it out under the trellis uh, so that we're getting maximum uh, light penetration into our canopy. We are running HPS lights because that's what we inherited. I would love to say we had LEDs, but the investment is not quite there yet. Uh, but we do have a lot of success with the HPSs. So harvest time is a big question. I think that's some, something that the Oklahoma market is slowly coming around to is when the time to properly harvest is. Uh, for a long time, everybody was harvesting really early. As soon as the buds started getting juicy, everybody was ripping them down. Uh, for me and my belief at the farm, we go off trichome color. So we'll get uh, the Dynalite or even on the budget side, a little jeweler's loop. Uh, take it to the trichome heads and you can kind of see the different colors here. We'll go for about a 15, 20% amber. And once we're seeing that, we know, okay, it's time to start stripping them down and getting them ready for, for the shop. Uh, there's also quite a few considerations because we do have a extract company that's vertically integrated with us. So if we know something's going to extract, there's a few considerations there in terms of timing for, for when we want to chop that down. At our place, uh, we defoliate, chop it down. It'll hang typically for two weeks at about 60 and 60 uh, temperature and humidity. Uh, and then we'll throw it in the tubes and start our curing process, which can take another you know, two to four weeks. Get it trimmed up, tested, all that fun stuff before sending it on to its, its final destination as it were, were at either the dispensaries at our, or our processing labs. These are some of the uh, new strains we just kind of finished up with. This is this month's harvest actually out for testing right now. Uh, so some, some pretty little frosty gals to look at right there. Uh, we are super happy with our DMO. The turf profile on that right now is excellent. If I just say so myself, it smells like a big old like bowl of soup is what I think every time I, I pop the jar open. Um, Growing the plants, super important, uh, but equally, as, if not more important, is the compliance, uh, especially in a medical market. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've got, you know, the best looking plants in the world, if you can't put that tag on it and certify that the lab has said, hey, it's safe for consumption and, and this is what's in the product you're selling, you really don't have any business being on the market. So compliance is a, a key part of that. So that's, you know, OMMA, our medical marijuana authority, metric is our seed to sale processor or seed to sale program that uh, tracks everything in the state. So compliance with those is critical and can really in itself be a full-time job just to keep all the ducks in the row. Uh, at the end of the day though, I think if there's one takeaway from my presentation, uh, it should be that teamwork is really what makes the whole farm operate, uh, having a good dependable group of people there that can, you know, care, first of all, uh, about what they're doing and producing a quality product, uh, care about the plant and the patients and the quality of the work that they do. Everything else after that uh, is, is pretty secondary. Uh, I can't say thanks enough to my team. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we do out there without them all. So. That's uh that's my big thing is is build build a good team and then uh, everything else kind of follows after that. But uh, this is uh, some of the social deets here. Uh, like I had said earlier, we are vertically integrated at the farm, so we sell the bulk of our product actually to our dispensaries. 
Uh, we've got one in Norman as well as Oklahoma City. Uh, you can see kind of the links there if you want to follow them on Instagram. There's also uh, our processing lab that works with us uh, listed out there. They do a wide variety of different uh, concentrates that are available out on the Oklahoma market right now. And of course, if you're trying to keep up with me and the team out at the farm, uh, at Vertica Farms, okay is how you would do that. But uh, I think that's all I got. I'm sorry I didn't leave too much time for questions, but if there's anything uh, critical, I suppose, that anybody wants to ask me, please feel free. Well, um, uh, thanks so much for joining us, Bane. It's always fun to see your facility and uh, always fun to take a tour down there. Um, unfortunately, I think we're about out of time for, for questions, but um, uh, I do apologize that we ran a little late with the panel there beforehand, but uh, thank you so much for the great presentation, man. No, not a problem at all. I uh, can't say thanks enough for having me here. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much. Please support these companies. They took the time to educate us during this conference. If you're looking for more education on aquaponic cannabis, please consider the aquaponic cannabis masterclass at apmjclass.com, featuring over seven days of in-depth, hands-on educational content with Marty Waddell and Stephen Reisner as your guides through the aquaponic cannabis universe. We'll cover everything from construction of large commercial facilities, home size systems, backyard systems, nutrients, pest control, diseases, everything you can think of, and, uh, and so much more. So be sure to check that out at apmjclass.com. And if you're looking for aquaponic cannabis or living soil uh, pest control courses, please check out uh, thepestclass.com, where we have a huge in-depth course on pest control, how to make your own um, bio controls, as well as in-depth guides and identification guides for a whole slew of different pests that you may encounter in your aquaponics garden. And it's not strictly just geared towards cannabis, uh, it's also geared towards vegetables as well. So be sure to check that out if it's something you think you might need to improve in your education.